Now the question we have to answer after all this is done with is will it be Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Daniel who will have to leave? Or will it be me? Well, good morning. Good morning to all of you in TV land. A star at last. Please turn with me to the third chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. Having lived with it for the last three and a half years, and still counting, one of the things I'm coming to appreciate about Paul's letter to the Corinthians is how it has given me a new and deeper understanding of the church, us. How it is to operate, its critical importance in God's economy, its necessity in the life of every believer. I've certainly read and studied, even taught other New Testament letters to first century churches, but through this one, the Lord has been particularly instructive about the vital, essential role the church plays in God's plan for man. I confess that there have been times in my earlier life when you might have heard me utter such foolishness as, I don't need to belong to a church. All of nature is my church. Well, we all have periods of stupidity in our lives. Somewhere. Happily for most of us, by God's grace and long-suffering, He keeps us alive long enough to learn from our transient stupidity. To grow out of it and grow up in Him. But the passage before us does not speak of the practical importance of the church. It, it does not speak, at least directly, of how we as individuals are better together than apart. How we are to encourage each other as part of the corporate body. How we are to share our lives with each other. Paul will indeed address that, but later in this letter, chapters 10 to 14 especially, as he does in other letters and other New Testament writers do, we know that that's important. This passage, verses 16 to 17 of chapter 3, speaks of the holiness of our God and the holiness of the corporate church that worships Him. The full wonder of these two verses is meant to cause the believer to reconsider, to reevaluate the purpose of our gathering together. Quite frankly, it is meant to take our breath away. Our focus is on verses 16 to 17, but let's back up and read the previous paragraph, starting with verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. 
for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing on this moment. We pray that you would reveal yourself in your word, that you would teach us, that you would change our lives because of what you have written. For myself, I pray that I would be faithful to your word, that no unclean words would pass my lips, no words unfaithful to your word. And that if some get by, they would vaporize. They would be forgotten immediately. We ask for your sanction on this and your blessing in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the paragraph just before us, these just in the paragraph just before these two verses, the council, indeed, even end times prophecy is directed toward individuals in the church. Note, verse 10, each man, one. Verse 11, no man, one. Verse 13, each man's work. And verses 14 to 15, any man's work. On the surface of most of our translations, we might think that in the next paragraph that begins with verse 16, Paul is continuing that focus on the individual. But the two yous, Y-O-U, in verse 16, are plural. Being a Southern Baptist, Paul is speaking to y'all. That is, Paul is speaking of the church as a whole. Understanding this change in focus from the individual to the community has the benefit of smoothing the transition from the previous paragraph to this one. In verses 10 to 15, although he addresses the individual, it's for the purpose of building up the church as a whole with sound construction. Thus, verse 16 continues this by referring to the church that was built in verses 10 to 15 as a temple of God. Paul begins verse 16 with, do you not know that? Now, we, we prize this book in our hands for its holiness. These are God's words. Not, not the book itself, but the words in them. They are God's. And we prize it for that. But we also prize it for its frank humanity. Not just that the characters written about, such as King David or Moses or, or Noah, are revealed warts and all. But at times, even some of the individuals that were the Holy Spirit's amanuensis, His pen, Paul, Peter, John, 
We know them as flawed human beings. They were not perfect. I had always read the first few words of verse 16. Do you not know that? As little more than just another rhetorical flourish by the Apostle Paul. That's what writers do. Do you not know that? No big deal. But there's probably more than that going on here. I believe we have evidence here and elsewhere in the letter that Paul was truly exercised over the conduct of the Corinthians. And that the opening phrase of this verse was spoken with real annoyance. Even exasperation. Consider, in only one other of his letters, in Romans 6, verse 3, does Paul employ that phrase. And that to set up a point that may not have occurred to the Romans. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Well, that could very well have been a fresh thought to the Romans that we are baptized into His death. That's a fairly esoteric pronouncement. It may have indeed have been a brand new concept for the Romans. But in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase ten times. Ten times. This is a visual world we live in. Ten times. And this is just the first occurrence. For the most part, Paul does this in passages where he is clearly exercised. Perhaps even at his wit's end with these believers. Take, for example, the next occurrence in chapter 5. Turn to that, please. Chapter 5. Beginning with verse 6. Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. From the, from the letter as a whole, we know that that's what they were doing. That's what the Corinthians were doing. I think it's safe to conclude that with his usage of this phrase in this letter, we hear Paul's exasperation with the Corinthians, and perhaps more. This could be rather pointed sarcasm. Earlier, especially in the latter half of chapter 1 into chapter 2, Paul spent so much time on the topic of wisdom and foolishness. Because the Corinthians were so enamored with a Hellenistic concept of Sophia. They were so, so impressed by these Hellenistic speakers that were so eloquent and sounded so much better than the Apostle Paul. So they were, they were latching on to this idea of wisdom. And he could very well be saying here something like, are you telling me that you who boast in being so wise do not know this? Jesus Himself took much the same line in His conversation with Nicodemus. Let's look at that. John chapter 3. John 3, verses 9-10. to Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? 
Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Note that. He doesn't say, Are you a teacher in Israel? He says, Are you the teacher? The head honcho, the guy on the podium, the guy who teaches other teachers. Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't get this? Whoa. What is Paul saying they do not know? That you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is an extraordinary statement recognizing one of the more mind-boggling supernatural aspects of the corporate church. The word translated temple does not refer to the entire temple complex, which would be Hirion but specifically to the sanctuary of the temple or holy of holies. It refers to the shrine itself. The most holy spot in the temple. He says you are a temple of God. That is the imagery Paul is using here of the church is not as the open courtyard of the temple complex where at any one moment hundreds of people, even Gentiles, could be could be milling about, conversing, arguing, teaching. Nor is he speaking of the first inner court, the court of women, or the next inner court where the priests received and butchered the sacrifices. He's not speaking of the interior holy place where only the priests could go inside the building. The word he chooses, naos, refers specifically to the holiest room in the temple where Yahweh Himself dwelt on the mercy seat. The room that only the high priest could enter and then only once per year to make atonement for the sins of all Israel. And trust me, He got in and out as fast as He could. If He made one little mistake, zap, He was gone. So if we were to superimpose the architecture of the modern church, onto that of the Jerusalem temple. We're not speaking of the parking lot. We're not speaking of the foyer. We're not speaking of the classrooms. We are speaking of the sanctuary. The room in which we meet with and worship God as a corporate body. This room. But of course, Paul is not speaking of architecture. He's speaking of something mystical. Something supernatural that takes place when the individuals of the church come together. It's apparent now that the Apostle is still on topic. He's continuing with the thread he began at least back in the middle of chapter 2. Flip back a page to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And notice how the enigmatic statement in verse 9 of chapter 3 is now beginning to make more sense. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Field? God's building. 
And what is that building? The temple of God. We're not talking about framing materials, bricks and mortar, windows and a roof. We're talking about the mystical union of believers called the church. And that church is where the Spirit of God dwells. He occupies the place. He resides and remains there. Not when we're not here, when we're here. I beg you not to pass lightly over this. We dare not just nod our heads in agreement saying, how nice. Now, next page. Remember how in the book of Hebrews, Christ is portrayed as filling multiple roles. He is at once the Lamb killed. It is His blood being carried into the Holy of Holies to be splashed onto the mercy seat of the ark. And He is the priest that carries in the blood. He's the one carrying in the basin of blood as the high priest. Then on top of that, Christ is the mercy seat on, on which the blood is sprinkled. Romans 3.25 Just so, every believer individually is the temple of God. And in that individual temple, the Spirit of God lives. He has taken up permanent residence. That is, every believer is the sacred Holy of Holies. We do not have it. We do not just have permission to enter it, which is remarkable in itself. We are it. But at the same time, we are individually the priest worshiping God and His Christ before the mercy seat. Then we add to that astounding truth the truth of this verse, which says that the church corporate, because it consists of individual temples, becomes in this sacred union of souls, as it were, a super sanctuary. A super holy of holies where the Spirit of God dwells. Verse 17 reminds us that the temple of God is holy. That word is hagios, sacred, consecrated. I like the, I've always been fascinated with the fact that that comes from the Greek hagos, an awful thing. An awful thing. What, what is the first thing anybody said whenever a, in the Bible, whenever a, a, an angel shows up? <laughs> Please don't kill me. They were, Scared to death whenever an angel showed up. Angels, I, I do believe that angels don't look like they're portrayed in storybooks. In white robe with a little bit of glow around them. With this insipid smile on their face. They just love everybody. They're warriors. They fight for God. They're His messengers. They deliver His Word. They fight. They band in together into armies and go to battle, to war. They're awful things. 
Every believer in Christ Jesus for his or her salvation is a holy temple in whom dwells the Spirit of God, much as the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the Jerusalem temple. Until that is the rebellion and sin of Israel drove it away in Ezekiel 10. So let that sink in for a moment. You and I are holy sanctuaries of God, for in us dwells permanently His Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a sobering, convicting realization. Verse 16 reminds me of the truth of 619, and that verse cuts into me like a knife. For it causes me to recall all the times this holy sanctuary has behaved as if it were not a holy sanctuary. Listen, please. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 What is equally convicting is the truth of verse 16 that when all of these individual temples come together as the church, they become one. Larger, holy temple or sanctuary of God. Just like, and it's no coincidence, just like in a marriage, two become one. They're not two people who happen to be living together, they're one. When we come together to worship God together before His throne, we become one sanctuary, one holy temple. And we, as a body of believers, unified as the church, must be willing to examine and appraise our behavior in and for Christ both as a body and as individual members of that body. And especially in what is to be the most sacred activity of a holy temple or sanctuary, the corporate worship of God. Now, when I was a little boy growing up in Marshalltown in the 50s, the official name of our church was Baptist Temple. That name was emblazoned over the front of the church. And I always found that a bit odd because all the other Protestant churches in town were called churches. It was only the Jews who called it a temple. But now I realize that that name was smack on. The congregation that met in that old and imposing building was indeed a temple of God. The group of souls that met in that old and now Sadly gone, building comprised a holy temple unto God. Verse 17, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. I confess that back in August of 2018, when our class was studying this passage, and I was preparing the lesson, I I struggled with verse 17. What was it talking about? Who was it talking about? And to what extent could a Christian destroy the temple of God? And if he did, would God actually destroy him? 
Well, neither of those seem to fit with the rest of Scripture, do they? Or is it talking about external forces, non-Christian individuals corrupting the church? I had to find, at the time, I had to find at least partial answers to these before I could really dig into the text. And once again, as is so often the case, I discovered there was no consensus. This one says one thing. That one says another thing. And far, far too many of them say nothing at all. Thanks a lot. Happily passing right over the question. The one thing in this passage that I can't understand and they're not going to answer it for me. Thank you. For example, Alexander McLaren, 1826-1910, a preacher and man of God whose work I respect comes to his sermon on 1 Corinthians 3.16-17 and says, in essence, I know the text is talking about the church as the temple of God, but my three points will be about the individual as the temple of God. Well, thank you very much, Pastor McLaren. I would say at the outset that, as is so often the case, the context of chapter 3 is our best guide to discerning the truth of this text. Put succinctly, the context is the building of the local church. In verses 5-9, to Paul speaks of the various leaders who were instrumental in forming the church. For example, look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And he cues up in verse 8 the later discussion about the workers in the church receiving their due reward. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Then Paul emphasizes in verse 9 the brotherhood of the leaders working together with each other as they all work for and under the guidance of God. In this he refers to the members of the church as God's field. And you can just hear Paul's wheels turning. He searches for another suitable metaphor. He says, field, that sounds kind of weird. What that is, God's building. That's a good metaphor. God's building. He says that, oh, and speaking of a building, let me tell you. And then he goes on. He launches into the next paragraph, verses 10 to 15, which is about all the church, not just the leaders, coming together to build the church on the foundation Paul set in in place, the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we read earlier, verses 10 to 15 are all about the quality of the work. Each individual turns in for the body. The church. If it is shoddy work, it's worth little. And it'll count for nothing in the day and be burned up in the day of judgment. Poof. If it is work of good, lasting, quality, solid, it will not be burned up and the individual will be rewarded by the Lord. In verse 16, Paul grabs the Corinthians and says quite forcefully, don't you realize how important this is? This church you are building is a holy sanctuary in which the Lord God dwells. The Jews and even pagans in the Corinth congregation would have understood the imagery right away. Not just the Jews with their idea of the Jerusalem temple but pagans as well. For in that time, in ancient times, temple to any god were 
were designed pretty much the same way. You had a, a, a big exterior wall enclosing the whole, the whole complex. You would pass through a gate and, and you'd be inside this open courtyard, open air courtyard. And then as you passed into the first building, you'd be in the hypostyle hall where all the big columns are. And you'd pass through that. And as you went deeper and deeper into the temple, the walls would close in. The ceiling would even lower. As you passed through into the area where only the priests went, and then only the high priest went, and you got into the Holy of Holies, the smallest room of all, and that's where the gods sat in pagan temples. In the Jewish temple, that's where the, the ark sat, where the mercy seat was. So anybody hearing this would understand the imagery, right? He says, you are that holy of holies where no one goes. The holiest place in the temple. Now note the progression of thought here in verse 17. Paul has just spoken at length about first, the laying of the foundation for the church. Then, second, the quality of the workmanship in the building of the church upon that foundation as it rises up. Which includes the warning that anyone who turns in shoddy work will receive no reward from the Lord. Verse 17 takes this one step further, making reference to individuals who do not stop with just turning in poor quality work, but actually work to corrupt defile, or ultimately destroy the holy temple of God. The King James versions use defile instead of destroy at the beginning of this verse. If any man defile the temple of God. But the Greek is the same word used in God will destroy him. Same word. The word Ptero, hard to pronounce, Ptero, means to shrivel or wither, to spoil, to ruin, corrupt, or, depending on the context, ultimately destroy. This raises a host of questions for the astute reader and student of God's Word. Right off the bat, we wonder at least, what does it mean to destroy the temple of God? To what extent? Who's Paul talking about? And perhaps even more troubling, what does it mean that God will destroy him? Let's consider these together. It's difficult to examine the one, the offense, without examining the other, the punishment. How should we understand the word destroy in this context? Well, the commentary of A.T. Robertson and A. Plummer summarizes it well, especially pertaining to God's response. Here's what they write. Bethero here must not be pressed to mean annihilation, that is, non-existence. Poof, gone. Never existed. Nor, on the other hand, must it be watered down to mean mere physical punishment. The exact meaning is nowhere revealed in Scripture, but terrible ruin and eternal loss of some kind seems to be meant. Also, the tense of the verb is such that it means if anyone is destroying, it's anyone is in the 
in the process of destroying, a continual action, action keeps on destroying. Then we ask, who is it that would try to destroy the sanctuary of God and be destroyed by God? We've established that the temple or sanctuary of God refers to the communion of saints as the local church. In its midst dwells, just as in every individual believer, the Spirit of God. Thus it is a holy place. Any place He is, it's holy. A sacred place. And this communion of saints is precious to God. Turn please to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two, and let's start with verse four. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A few verses later, Paul describes those that make up this sanctuary. Look at verses 9-10. to But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How can anything so precious in the sight of God be destroyed or defiled by any man. And who would be doing this? As mentioned earlier, the jury is still out on this. And this is not the occasion to get bogged down in hashing out the fine details of the perseverance of the saints. But we should not forget two things. First, that no man can be certain of the condition of any other man's soul. And that not everyone who passes through the front door of a church building on a Sunday morning is a believer in possession of the Spirit of God. A perfect real-life illustration of verse 17 was brought to my attention by Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in his daily briefing for August 21, 2018. He cites the extraordinary pace at which secularism is taking over Scotland. And he speaks of Scotland in particular, but we can say from all of Europe. He says that last year the BBC reported that a majority of Scots now say that they are not religious. Just under a quarter, that's 23.6% of Scots said they are religious while 72.4 say they were not. 
For example, quote, last year the Humanist Society Scotland conducted more weddings than any other religious group, including the Church of Scotland, which is the Scottish branch of the Church of England. And humanism is not just synonymous with secularity. Humanism is the exaltation of human above God. Human becomes God. What makes this news pertinent to our text is the reason why Scotland has so dramatically and quickly turned secular. I quote Albert Moeller again. Now as we're looking at Richard Holloway, we're looking at a man who from 1986 to 2000 was the Bishop of Edinburgh of the Scottish Episcopal Church. Between 1992 and 2000, he was the primus. He was the chief cleric. That is, the chief leader, ministerially speaking, of the Episcopal Church in Scotland. But what we read about is Bishop Holloway's, quote, declension of belief, end quote. What does that mean? It means the bishop's abandonment of the faith while he was the Bishop of Edinburgh. While he was the primate of the Scottish Episcopal Church. During that period, Moeller continues, he abandoned not only all the historic doctrines of Christianity, not only any claimed biblical inspiration or authority, but he abandoned by any normal definition theism, which means belief in God. So here we're talking about a nation that has experienced a decline of belief, which oddly enough runs just about parallel to the loss of belief of one of the nation's most important, most famous religious leaders, who's now mostly famous or infamous for being non-religious. Now that he has left the church, Holloway's every work, whether spoken or written, is meant to undermine, corrupt, defile, even destroy the church. Now, we could debate whether Holloway lost his faith or never had it in the first place. But for this discussion, it's beside the point. To all appearances, Holloway was a believer. He was the head believer. He was the guy in charge. He was supposed to be the believer teaching the other believers He was the head of the church in Scotland, the Bishop of Edinburgh, for crying out loud. Yet for the last 20 years, he's been doing everything he can to actually destroy the church. And with great success. It's working. Just look at the frantic pace with which his country is abandoning God. The temple of God whether in Jerusalem, Edinburgh, Scotland, or Martinsdale, Iowa, is precious to God. And it is to His great peril for any man to do anything that imperils the church. Zane Pratt, Dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism, puts it eloquently and succinctly. I like this. You don't mess with God's stuff. That's good. You don't mess with God's stuff. 
He's God for crying out loud. We can't say with certainty what Paul means by God will destroy him. It's safe to say it won't be pleasant. We can say with confidence that Richard Holloway in the day he stands before the judgment seat of Christ will indeed be destroyed. Gordon Fee writes this, The theological question as to whether a true believer could be destroyed by God lies beyond Paul's present concern. In any case, one must be careful not to let the logic of one's system prejudge the plain meaning of of Paul's words. That these people were members of the Corinthian community seems beyond reasonable doubt. They were in church every Sunday. They were part of the church. That Paul is also serving up a genuine threat of eternal punishment seems also the plain sense of the text. The theological resolution of such tension will lie either with the concept of the visible church being composed of more than the real church destined for God's glory, or with the supposition that some who by all appearance do belong to the community of faith have for reasons beyond our understanding opted out and are once again pursuing a path leading to destruction. The net result is the same in either case. Visible church is the church that we see here every Sunday. Is it the real church? We don't know, do we? Because we can't read everyone's heart, everyone's soul. We don't know. In conclusion, and everyone said amen. Any difficulty we have in nailing down the specifics of Paul's warning should not preclude us from drawing from it valuable application. As believers and part of the holy temple of God, not just in it, but a component of it, we must continually be on guard to protect its integrity from deceitful threats from without and from within. As believers and part of the holy temple of God, we must continually be examining our own behavior Do our words and actions strengthen this sanctuary, this holy place? Or weaken it? Are we encouraging unity or division? Peace or strife? Paul in this text has given us fair and sobering warning. But we should not let these stern warnings cause us to lose sight of how Paul closes this paragraph at the end of verse 17. That's where we want to end. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. How can you read something like that and not be changed? Just as the Holy of Holies containing the Shekinah glory of God in that ancient Jerusalem temple was utterly holy, sacred, consecrated. So is every individual believer as a discrete unit, as a solitary soul in Christ's kingdom, a holy temple of God. Beyond even that mind-blowing truth, these two verses express the truly breathtaking statement from God that when those individual units gather together as the body of Christ, the church, as we have in this moment, 
It becomes a holy temple in worship of very God. We as a church are not just granted permission to enter the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies. And this has to change us. This has to change how we think of ourselves, how we behave in this world. It certainly has to inform our corporate worship. But also our private worship. And our daily lives. No matter where we are. Let's close with Paul's grand pronouncement that opens chapter 12 of Romans. Romans chapter 12. His imagery in perfect accord with the writer of Hebrews. That like Christ Jesus, we are both the Holy of Holies and the sacrifice being offered there. Start with verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, and here's the magic, members of one another. We are a holy temple unto God, the holy of holies, and we are members not just of that temple, but of each other. The church. The mystery of God's church. Father God, thank You for Your Word today. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for giving us Your Spirit. What a precious gift. Thank You for using us in this fallen world. And thank you for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. And we have one more song.